New City Church in downtown Phoenix reaches more than 2,000 students, young professionals, and families each week. Dr. Brian Kreckenberg founded this growing urban church in 2011 after leaving his law career to become a pastor. He has a passion to teach the Bible and a heart to lead a church that intersects with the culture around it. Join us in welcoming our friend, Dr. Brian Kreckenberg, back to SBC. Well, thank you again for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to all of you in this room, those watching online at the chapel, at the Cactus Campus, over at the venue. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Uh, thank you to Jamie for allowing me to be here once again. I first met Jamie about eight years ago, right before we were getting ready to start New City Church. And he was at a, a leadership event for pastors and he was teaching. And as he was teaching and I was preparing to plant a church, I thought to myself, oh boy, this guy knows more about the Bible and has forgotten more about the Bible than I may ever know. He was sort of an intimidating intellectual guy. But I've gotten to know Jamie, and yes, he is an intellect, but he has a massive heart for people and for Jesus. And so I've loved learning from him, and now that I get to come and share with you again, it is an honor. I first walked onto this campus just a little bit after I met Jamie. I, I had heard that there was a, a great young worship leader leading worship over at the venue. And so I, so I thought to myself, I need a worship leader. Let's go see. And so I took my then seven-year-old son, who is now about 14 years old, or he is 14, and we walked over, we went to the, the venue, and he was over there taking full advantage of the free donut holes. And he looked at me in all seriousness and said, Dad, are we going to buy this church? <laughs> That's one way to get started. I said, no, son, we're here to steal, steal a worship leader, okay? We're not buying anything. Last summer I came, I taught, I got to know Steve Erickson a little bit, and in the fall we did steal Steve Erickson from you, okay? So you never know what can happen after today's service, who knows? But it is a pleasure, an honor, and I'm glad to be here teaching today. I'm going to be teaching today from the letter to the church at Philippi. Uh, the letter we call Philippians in the scriptures. So if you brought your Bible and you want to open that up, you can do so. Turn it to Philippians chapter 1. If you prefer to follow along on the screen, you can do that as well. Philippians is full of what I like to call coffee mug verses or poster-worthy verses. It's all over uh, the letter to the church at Philippi. Right? We, we have, you know, in Philippians 2 and Verse 13, it says, I forget what lies behind and I press forward to that which is ahead. Uh, Philippians 4, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And maybe uh, the ultimate verse in Philippians 4 is verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me See, I told you, you have a coffee mug, don't you? Well, I'm going to be talking about one of those coffee mug verses today as well. But it comes to us in Philippians chapter 1. 
And what it will do today is define one of life's most important terms. And definitions are important. The meaning of words are important. So important that Socrates said this, the definition, or excuse me, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. Now I'll show why he wasn't completely right here at the end of the sermon, but I think he's on to something there. Do you know what the definition of definition is, by the way? I, I looked that up uh, a couple of months ago. Never looked up the definition of definition. I found this. The definition of definition is a statement expressing the essential nature of something. So it's important, isn't it, to understand the essential nature of what it is we are talking about. So I used to be a corporate attorney. And so I drafted many contracts, and I'd spend hours arguing with other attorneys, oftentimes about the definition of terms. Because we know if we're going to license, quote, software, and this is one of the things I did, it's really important to know what software means, isn't it? If you're renting the premises, it's really important to understand what the premises are. If you're in a relationship, especially if you're single, right? What do you have to do? Define the relationship, okay? The DTR. Kids are still having those conversations today, I promise you. I haven't had that conversation for a long time. Uh, the definition of my status has been married for 19 years, okay? So I haven't had that conversation in quite some time. But words matter, don't they? What about the word evangelical? We've heard that one thrown around a lot lately, haven't we? Well, why don't you define evangelical, and I'll tell you if I am one. Church. Well, define it, and I'll tell you if I belong to one. What about this? One of my favorite words, coffee. Define it, and I'll tell you if I want one. I'm a coffee snob. Not all coffee is created equally, okay? Words matter. The definition of words makes a difference. Perhaps one of the most important definitions of all is the definition of life itself. And that's why we pick this up in Philippians chapter 1 in the second part of verse 18. Now, Paul again is writing to this church. Paul is in prison. Uh, he's a, in Rome writing to a church who's facing some difficulty, much like he is, much like all the first century church was. And, and Paul, uh, we join him when he has just said, I have my joy and I can always have joy because of what he writes here. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this, this imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here it is. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, 
for that is far better. Let's stop right there and talk for a few minutes. Paul could say what? If I live, if I die, it doesn't matter. Why? Because his definition of life was what? Was Christ himself. That was his definition. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Dying is an upgrade. So Paul says, I want to stay here, but I kind of want to just go and be with Jesus too. Paul's, li Paul's life definition, just like your life's definition, determines your outlook on life. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. The definition, how we define our life, determines the outlook we have on it. Paul, in a prison cell, not what he had planned necessarily, he says, I'm okay, because I, I don't define my life based upon how the world's circumstances, these sorts of things. What about us? How do we define our lives? Be honest with yourself. I see a lot of people define their lives like this. For me to live is to be moral. Uh, a lot of us in the church might you know, define our lives in that way. It's not wrong to be moral, it's good to be moral. But what happens when you slip up and you're not? Is that your definition of life? What about this? For some people, for me to live is pleasure, vacations, a second home, these sorts of things. For me to live is my job. So what am I if I don't have the title behind my name that I do now or the, or the letters in front of my name because they have letters in front of their name that I'd like to have? My, for me to live is success in school, getting into the right school, not that school. For me to live is to be married. For me to live is be single. For me to live is to have children. For me to live is to have successful children. You see the problem with these definitions of life, don't you? Each and every one of the things that I just mentioned can be taken from us, and none of them is promised to us. But the thing that cannot be taken from us is what? Christ himself. This is why Paul says, my outlook on life has to be rooted in Christ. As a pastor, and even as a person, I see lots of people trying to mine from life, uh, mine life from things that can't produce life, like our jobs or like, you know, the right school or children. We, we're, we're looking for life, and if we try to find life in those things, we're not going to find what we're looking for. I'm guessing most of, us, most of us in this room have had blood drawn from us. Okay, is that a safe assumption? I'm assuming most of us watching in the other venues or online have had blood taken. I'd have blood taken a couple months ago, had a little knee surgery thing, and then after the surgery, there's this thing they can do. They take blood from you, they spin it in a little machine, they get a really big needle, they stick it back into your knee, and it helps the knee heal uh, quicker. And so, of course, I'm going to get my blood drawn, and I don't know about you, but as soon as I am going to get my blood drawn, I start to assess the person taking the blood, don't you? <laughs> like, I start profiling people really quick when they have a needle that's about ready to go into my arm, okay? 
And, and this is how we all think, right? We want, we want someone experienced, don't we? Nothing against young people, okay? But we want some experience behind the needle. We, we want probably a lady, sorry guys, okay? A soft, gentle touch if you're going to be sticking that thing into my arm. Well, the guy I got was... A man's man, okay? There's some times you want a man's man around, like maybe around a campsite if a bear's in the camp, something like that, but you don't want him with a needle. <laughs> he had hair all over, you know, had a do-rag wrapped around. I thought, man, this guy just listened to Metallica in his car before coming in here to take my blood. <laughs> he did a great job. Actually, got the blood right away. It was good. He found what he was looking for. He, he was in the right spot. So many of us, if you've ever had someone use your arm as a pincushion, that's painful, isn't it? Well, that's what it's like to look for life in all the wrong places. There's a song there somewhere. Paul says, me to live is Christ. That's how I define it. That's where I draw my life from. Not only that, Paul says, my outlook on life isn't just Christ. But let me read a little bit more and I'll get to point two. He says, right, he has just said, I want to go with Christ because that's far better. Verse 24 says this, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel." Now, I find this interesting looking at verse 25 and then look, looking at verse 27. Because in verse 25, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Two verses later, he doesn't sound so sure. He says, whether I come and see you or am absent. So which one was it, Paul? Are you sure you were going to get there? Or maybe you're not so sure you're going to get there. Here's what I draw from this for the sake of our conversation today. Your, defin of, your definition of life doesn't just determine your outlook. It determines the order of your life. The order of your life. Do you know about Paul's plan? Paul had a plan to go to Spain. Do you know that? It says that in the book of Acts. Paul, we always hear about his plans to get to Rome. He gets to Rome in prison, probably not how he planned it. But he really wants to get to Spain to, to take the gospel into that part of the world. And yet here he is in a Roman prison cell. And Paul, because his outlook in life was defined in Christ, and because he had his definition rooted in Jesus, he said, well, if my plans change here on earth, that's okay. Because it isn't my plans, then God's plans. It's God's plans, then my plans. This is the order of our life. It has to be what God plans first because that's the only thing that we can really rely upon. Our plans change, don't they? My wife, she's a saint. She married an attorney, a corporate attorney, me. She's now presently married to a pastor. 
me. <laughs> that, that has a, that, that life sounds a little different, doesn't it? All the women in the room are going, yeah, it does. Amen to that. It does sound different. Sometimes things we have plans and plans change, but we know if our life is defined by Christ, that's okay. God's got a different plan. Let's press into what God's plan is. One of the most famous stories of the Old Testament, most of you probably know it, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men who were told that they had to bow down to the pagan gods and, and worship a false god. What'd they say? No, thank you. We'll worship the one true God. They said, well, you're going to get thrown in this really, really hot furnace. They said, well, that's okay. Throw us in the furnace, but we can't change our life's definition. And so, I love Daniel 3. They said, we know that our God can deliver us. I love this. We know that our God will deliver us. What's next? But even if he doesn't, <laughs> I'm not changing my life's definition. You want me to define my life based upon this false God? Well, that's dumb. Why? Because that's a false God and I, have, I worship the one true God. You want me to change my life's definition from Jesus to my job? That's not a good trade. You want me to change my life definition for Jesus in, in my retirement, for, for Jesus and acceptance into this business school? I'm not going to do it. None of those things are bad, by the way. Our jobs, our school, financial security, those things aren't bad, but they're not ultimate. We have to define our life in Christ, then we get the order of our life correct. See, Paul was in a predicament Paul's circumstances had changed, but the definition of his life hadn't changed. Who he was ultimately had not changed. So he could say, whether I come or whether I don't, it's all God's and to him be the glory. Now we continue. I'm gonna reread verse 27 and pull out another implication for our life's definition. Verse 27 again said this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. This is important for this point. One mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind striving side by side. What this tells me is our definition of life determines our partners in life. Our partners, who we do life with. This, he was saying, hey, now you've been inserted into a new family. You have one mind, one spirit, one faith, one baptism. We go into the other parts of the scripture, right? And what God does, here's his plan. He puts us together with new people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different races and ethnicities, all different ages. And he says, now have the same mind of yourselves. And that's really hard, isn't it? We serve a very diverse uh, people group uh, in downtown Phoenix, uh, lots of variations amongst all those different classes that I just mentioned. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put you all in this body and I want you all to be of one mind. <laughs> but that's what the church is. It's not just the church, if I could pause here for just a second. It's also 
right, our personal lives. If you become a Christian, this is why we say, like, if you're going to get married, we say what? Well, you need to marry another Christian. <laughs> why? Because you need to share the same definition of life, Jesus Christ. Why? Because when things get difficult, and they will newlyweds, they'll get difficult. <laughs> when they do, you have the same life definition, right? It, maybe you're not married. Your closest friends. We, we should have friends who are non-believers, but your closest friends, they need to be Christians. Why? Because when things get difficult, and they do, right? Single people, they get difficult. You need someone who points back and says, no, I know, you, I know you want this, or I know you want that. I know you might want to date, or I know you might want to break up with this person. But you can't let your relationship define your life. It's Christ who defines your life. So it's important that our partners in life have one mind, one spirit. Paul, of course, though, he's writing here primarily to the group of the church, not, not just individuals. That's how we read the Bible uh, typically, but we should read it more as a collective and he's, say, he's saying, uh, you are uh, citizens of a, of a new kingdom. You're part of this body, and so be one together. He says, strive side by side. Now, the Roman who heard this language and heard these words would immediately thought of the military. Because in the military, I've never served in the military, but if you have, I'm guessing it's pretty important that, you're, that the people that you're fi fighting with in battle are of one mind. They're of one heart. They're of one spirit, correct? And so the Romans would have heard that and said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. As a, as a military person, we have to be side by side. The Greeks would have heard this primarily as an athletic reference because of their athletic prowess and their games. And so isn't it important if you're on a team, I've been on many, that you do what? You strive side by side. It's important. Whenever I hear this and read this, immediately I think of athletic competition and I think of the good old three-legged race. You ever participated in one of these things? <laughs> They're a broken leg waiting to happen, right? They, they start out nice, though. They start out looking like this. Everybody's orderly, lined up, the band's in place. But it doesn't take long before they start going like this. There's, there's big sister. She's getting the best of little brother there. That, that's how most three-legged races I've seen, that's how they end up, isn't it? That reminds me a little bit of the church, unfortunately. We're called to define our lives through Christ, thus have partnership with others in the church. I love what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So I just wrote this in my notes. The church is called to be a united, humble, loving, gentle, and non-hypocritical, thus repentant people. I say that um, because we're all hypocrites in transition, okay? And so, church, sometimes we're going to fall short. And when we do, we confess and we repent. That's what makes us believers. And we ask for forgiveness. And so Paul says, okay, the outlook is different. The order of your life is different. You have now new partners in life because of your definition of life being Christ. 
And now you have something else. Again, I'll repeat part of verse 27 and tack on 28 here. He says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Your definition of life determines your opponents in life. Right, going, going back to the military mindset. So if you're fighting a war, there's an opponent. If you're playing a sport, going back to the athletic mindset, you're playing a sport, there's an opponent. And so Paul says that there are going to be opponents to the gospel, those who oppose it. And he says, don't be frightened if we were to look at the, the Greek language here, it's more uh, aptly translated, don't be startled, don't be sh- surprised or shocked. A few weeks ago, uh, so it's late April, almost early May, I overhear someone in our lobby at New City Church, actually one of our pastors. He says, oh man, I looked at the weather forecast next week. I can't believe it's going to be in the mid-90s. And I thought to myself, What? You can't believe it's going to be in the mid-90s in May in Phoenix? Like, you're shocked by this? We live in the desert, man. Our state flower is the saguaro cactus blossom. Our state bird is the cactus wren. Get this. Our state tree is the palo verde, which means green stick. We have a stick for a state tree. The state fossil, petrified wood. (laughs) It just gets so hard, it gives up, it just turns into rock. And you're shocked that it's going to be hot in May? (laughs) This is what I don't get about Christians sometimes. We're shocked when non-Christians act like non-Christians. Now, I'm not saying we should accept it, I'm not saying we should celebrate it, but we shouldn't be shocked by it. We shouldn't be frightened by it. After all, we know who wins the game. Flip to Revelation. Paul says you're going to have opponents. Now, how do we define our opponents? Some Christians say, oh, that's really easy. Democrats. (laughs) That was a joke, okay. It's a joke. You know what I like to do when I think about opponents? Well, I say this because I sound holy now. I'm a pastor. I'm up here on stage. What I'd like myself to do always when I think about opponents to the gospels, I'd first like to look at myself. I think that's a healthy exercise. I'd like to look at the church. Church, isn't it so true that often we, the church, are our biggest opponents to the gospel itself? I myself, how, how, how might I be living my life in a manner not worthy of the gospel, right? That's what Paul charges us to. And so how might I myself be opposing the gospel? So I like to consider that as well. But, but make no mistake, you see. This is very unpopular in 2018. It's, it's always been unpopular apparently because people were getting killed for their faith in Jesus way back in the first century. But it's really popular, isn't it, to say that there is right and there is wrong. 
There is good and there is bad. There is one true God. There is one way to life, and his name is Jesus Christ. Some people won't like that very much. Our charge is to be humble. Our charge is to be winsome. Our charge is to be approachable. Our charge, as Peter says, is always be prepared to give account for the hope that you have, to give a reason for that. All those things are true. But some people still won't like it. Don't be shocked by it. Be burdened by it. Be, be driven to prayer by it. Why? Because for you to live is Christ, and you know there's no other way, there's no other definition, no matter what this world throws at us, there's no other true definition of life but Christ himself. Then Paul concludes this piece with some rather bad news, both for the opponents and, and really for the Christians themselves. He says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. They're really upset because the gospel is a clear sign to them, here we go, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So when we become Christians, there's some suffering that happens, isn't there? Again, if I, th I think about Paul and I think about his writings, I think of my internal struggle and suffering sometimes because my flesh wants one thing, but the Spirit of God has something better for me. And, and Paul says, yeah, you wrestle with that, don't you? I, I do all the time. And so there's some suffering of sorts that happens. But, but the gospel that we proclaim that, that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, the only way to life, that creates tension in culture. And so that tension creates suffering. Now, sometimes, as they were experiencing, sometimes that suffering meant, well, people were dying for their faith. They were suffering physically. For you, that suffering may look different. That suffering may be being ostracized at school, being ostracized at work because you're not going along with, you know, the normal locker room talk. You're not getting engaged or you refuse to lie. You refuse to, to cross the bounds of what the scripture says is right, good, and true. And that might create some tension in your life. Paul says, don't be surprised by it. He says, it's granted to us that we believe in Jesus, but also that we suffer for him. And isn't it so true that difficulty in life reveals our true outlook, our true order, our true partners, and our true opponents in life? Isn't that true? If you've lived any life, you know that's true. When the going gets tough, that's when you have to really take you know, an assessment of, okay, well, how was my life ordered? I got laid off. And so I've lost this. I got fired and I don't have this anymore. Or I didn't get into that school. Now I got to go to ASU or something. <laughs> Sorry. I have no rooting interest. U of A, ASU, GCU, go Lopes, okay? I have no vested interest. But when those things are taken from you and the difficulty of life, doesn't then it make you assess your order? 
Like, what was really important to me? You stand for the things of Jesus, you begin to suffer. It's going to reveal who's really with you. Perhaps he's really against you. Many theologians suggest that the only thing that will really bring the church back together again is persecution. It's not what we want to hear necessarily, but I tell you what, the church starts getting persecuted. We're going to find really quick who's in and who's out, aren't we? The difficulty in life tends to bring clarity to how we really see it, how we order it, who we're partnered with and who we're opposed by. But perhaps most importantly, so we've talked about these different things about how we live our life. But notice what Paul said here. He says, it's a sign of them to their destruction, but of your salvation. So here's my last point. Your definition of life determines the ultimate destination of your life. The order, the outlook, the partners, the opponents, those are good. And those are, those are good, fruitful things for us to walk out of here with and, and to take stock of. But Paul says it here. He says, of their destruction. <laughs> he doesn't mince words there. He says, but of your salvation. And by the way, where does our salvation come from? It says it right there at the end of verse 28. And your salvation and that from, from who? From God. Socrates said that the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. Well, the psalmist says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of of the Lord. You see, we, we, have, we have a problem, folks. We have a, we have a sin problem. We have a death problem. We have a hell problem if we're to believe Jesus and take him at his word. And the only way that, that has been revealed to us that can solve that problem is salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That this salvation is from God. God judges the salvation. It's for God. We are saved to serve, not saved to sit. And salvation is by God. Jesus seals it. What's your definition of life? What is it? If it's anything other than Christ you might just begin to contemplate, where is that ultimately taking me? Where is that ultimately leading me? Because Paul says the only way to avoid destruction, the only way to experience joy in this life and the life to come is to have one definition of life and one definition of life only, and that is to live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. As the word has gone out, I pray, Lord, that it would have its intended impact. And that impact we would intend is as uh, you, you speak of in your word, that it would fall upon fertile soil, that it would take root. Lord, we pray against the schemes of the evil one that would want to come and snatch this word as it's just settling in. Lord, we, we pray against the cares and worries of this world to, that want to grow up and choke out our life's definition. 
God, we pray that the word would take deep root, that would change how we see the world. It would change how we prioritize our life. It would change how we partner with who we partner with, and it would help us declare who's in opposition. But ultimately, Lord, we pray that this word would root and grow and flourish until the day we see you face to face. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.